Guys, we are going to jump into the preaching of God's Word. Now, we're working our way systematically through the book of Matthew, the first of the New Testament uh, books about Jesus, and we use the ESV translation. I've asked Ben Bridges to read it for us today. So please grab out your Bibles if you have one. Uh, it'll be on the screen, but if you have your Bibles with you, then you can read along while I'm preaching and making sure I'm getting it from where it says it in the text, etc. Uh, so Matthew chapter 16, and Ben's going to start in verse 13 to give us the context. Thank you, brother. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bajona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of the Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Thank you, Ben. Would you join me in prayer once again? Well, our God and Father, we ask that you may bless the preaching of your word in Jesus' name and for the good of your people. Amen. I don't know if you're the type of person that loves roller coasters and the adrenaline ride of jumping on, uh, you know, the scariest, biggest roller coaster you can. Uh, I used to, you know, be a little bit fearful, but, you know, I overcame my fear, jumped on the roller coasters. And there's something about that exhilaration and that adrenaline rush as you clink slowly up and up and up and up and up and you're looking up and then suddenly you look out and you see, you get to the, the top of the pinnacle and you're like, whoa, this is an incredible view. You see the horizon, you get to see the rest of the theme park, you get to see, I don't know, wherever else out into the distance, the bush, the beauty, the bay, whatever it is. And there's that brief moment of beauty <laughs> and then you tip over the edge and it's all on and all the fear, the sick feeling as you plummet down and down and down and down and it feels like it's never going to end and your face is going to fall off or you're going to vomit, you're going to lose everything, uh, you lose your keys and you hope that you're strapped in right uh, and then it all goes off again and up and down and up and down. 
As we come to this text in Matthew chapter 16 and in verse uh, chapter 17, it's really a roller coaster ride, a roller coaster ride for us, but even more so for the disciples. The disciples have been, you know, with Jesus all this time, healing and miracles and teaching and all this incredible stuff. And then the roller coaster starts to clink up and up and up. Jesus asks them, Who do you say that I am? Oh, the crowds. And they answer all these different things. And then he says, you know, who do you say that I am? And Peter replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Finally, Jesus has revealed himself. They're up, they're getting up, up to the top. And not only that, then Jesus says, I will build my church. Not even the gates of hell or death can defeat them. And I give you the keys of the kingdom. So the disciples are at the top. They are loving life and they are totally unprepared and unaware of what is about to come as if it's the first time they've ever been on a roller coaster and they thought it was just a merry-go-round <laughs> or a, you know what's the big the ferris wheel you get up to the top and then it slowly takes you down no it's not like that for the disciples once we turn the corner of verse 21 jesus begins to reveal to the disciples how all of this is going to take place he begins to reveal that their idea of what this kingdom going forward, of what this Messiah is going to be, is radically different to what his eternal plans are. Uh, this turn takes the disciples by surprise. And if we're listening carefully, it ought to still shock us and jar us considerably. This passage and the call that Jesus has and the mission of his life goes against our natural instincts. It certainly goes against the mantra of our world that we live in. Our natural hopes and our natural aspirations, or at least mine, and maybe it's just me, I want victory. I want success. You know, I want power. I want comfort. I want reputation. At the very least, I want security and safety. We want up, not down, you could say. We want living and not dying. That's our natural hopes, our natural inclinations. That's what the disciples wanted. That's what they thought was the high point. And then Jesus turns everything and they go rocketing down on the roller coaster. But as we're going to see today, we're going to see that the way up is down and the way to truly live is by dying. We're going to see that the way following Jesus, with following Jesus, the way up is actually down. And the way to truly live is by dying. Sounds weird. Sounds paradoxical. Sounds like it doesn't make sense. It certainly doesn't unless there's an eternal life and unless Jesus really is God. So let's dive into the passage today and see how Jesus gets there and see what it means for us right now in 2021. I've got three simple points to help us um, pick apart the passage. What he must do, point number one. What we must do, point number two and why we must do it. What he must do, what we must do, why we must do it. Three simple points. Let's jump into point number one and strap yourself in. Uh, we'll try and enter the roller coaster like it's the first time we've read this passage. And maybe if you're tuning in for the first time, you don't know much about Christianity, this might be the first time um, you've seen this. And so get ready. <laughs> it's not going to be what you expect most likely. Point number one, what he must do what he must do the unstated question behind this passage is so how will the church be built if you are the christ if you are the messiah 
And your unstoppable, unbreakable, invincible, impenetrable plan is to build a gathering of your people that not even Satan, that not even death can conquer. How are you going to do it? You would have noticed in verse 20 that Jesus actually makes a strange command after he tells them all these great things. He says to the disciples that they are to be silent, that they're not to tell anyone that he's the Christ or of his great plan just yet. Why is this? Well, it's because at this present time, the disciples fundamentally don't understand what Jesus's real plan is. They misunderstand what it means to be a Messiah. And so before they could go out and preach the message of the Messiah, they must first learn what this great fact meant. Before they can go out and tell people, they actually need to understand what the mission of the Messiah really is. So Jesus outlines to them in verse 21 what he must do. Let's read it again. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must, four things, go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus's method His plan of attack for building an indestructible gathering of his people, his church, that not even death or Satan can touch, is not through conquest or crusade. It's not through glory or self-aggrandizement. But instead, it is through sacrificial death. His sacrificial death. Not just the martyrs of his armies going forth to take back Jerusalem. No, no. This king is going to conquer by dying. For Jesus, there is only one way to build his church. There's only one way for the kingdom to advance. It's through the way of the cross. It's the way of pain, the way of sacrifice, the way of death. Note what this text says. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must. I don't know if you noticed that word, But Jesus is making it incredibly uh, concrete and clear to his disciples of what he must do. This isn't, uh, you know, all roads lead to Rome. There's no universal way of saving. There is one plan. One commentator said that this passage um, speaks of divine necessity. I think, you know, to use that word from the previous sermon, it pulses with divine necessity. The mustness of this plan ought to take us by surprise. This is what Jesus must do to build his church and to save his people. This is the eternal plan of God. The scriptures agree on this. All throughout the New Testament, it reveals that this is what the Trinity agreed on before they created the world. The cross is not plan B because there are no plan Bs with God. So what must Jesus do to build his church? Let's look. Let's just pause now. Let's reflect on those four things. Don't just skip over them too quickly. Like, yeah, we know this. This is the facts. But these facts is what has brought us eternal life. Firstly, he must go to Jerusalem. He's been there before. Jerusalem is the religious capital of Israel. It's where the temple is. It's where they worshipped. It's where King David made it his home city. 
It's the city of the king. It's David's city. It's Zion. It's the place of refuge. It's where all of Israel's worship and life and social culture and political, everything flows out from Jerusalem. He's been there many times, even in his ministry during the Passover. But now he will make his final journey south to Jerusalem. He will climb the hills and the ascents and the steeps and head towards Mount Zion one last time. And this time, He won't go for the Passover. He will go to be the Passover lamb. Picture this image. Jesus is saying, I must, as this Passover lamb, make my own journey to the sacrificial altar, offering myself for my people. Firstly, he must go to Jerusalem. There is no other way. Secondly, he must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. Those who ought to reverence him and adore him and worship him and welcome him. The the men, the leaders of Israel, the top three tiers of Israel, they were meant to be the ones gathering the people and saying, he's here. It's the Messiah. But instead, Jesus predicts and prophesies that these men will be the instruments of his suffering. These men who have been instituted in these positions of responsibility will be the ones that will cause his death. They will make him suffer many things. They will mock him, abuse him, accuse him, arrest him, whip him, spit on him, and deliver him over to a Gentile ruler to be killed outside the city limits. Secondly, he must suffer many things. There is no other way. Thirdly, as we rocket down the roller coaster, he must be killed. Think of how ridiculous this sounds. I will build my church and not even death can defeat my church. How am I going to do it? I'm going to die. It doesn't, you know, you can't make this stuff up. If if Christianity was just a legend that they built, you know, a couple hundred years after the time of Jesus, you wouldn't include this because it doesn't make sense. It's not possible. Death is the end. It's the great thief. It's the result of the curse. If you read through the Old Testament, there's the constant question since Genesis 3, who will crush the serpent? Who will be the forever king? One storybook says it like. Is it Moses? He died. Is it Joshua? He died. Is it David? He died. Is it Saul? He died. You read through one or two kings and one or two chronicles. King died. King died. King died. All of them, even the good ones, Josiah, Hezekiah, they all died. And now Jesus is saying, I'm just like them. I must, I'm going to die. But note this, it's not just that he must die. It's that he must be killed. He's not going to die of old age or illness or sickness like all the great kings. He will be killed. He will be actively put to death by someone other than himself. That's how he will build his church. That's what he must do. He must be killed. There is no other way. And finally, we sort of reach the bottom of the the adrenaline rush and we start to kick back up. But I think given the the, the way down, this last one, this fourth one, probably didn't land so heavy on the disciples. I think they would have missed it and it wouldn't have been much of a concept for them. Finally, he must be raised on the third day. 
there is a hint of hope. Like Jonah, three days in the belly of a fish, Jesus will come out of the belly of death. He will destroy the darkness. He will defeat this death. But until we get there, it's the shadow of the cross which looms over this passage. It's the darkness of human evil and our sin. So he must do all these things. This is what he must do to build his church. And this series of prediction begs a question. Why? If you are God, if you could plan all things, why would you plan it like this? Why must he do these things? Why must this take place? Is there no other way to build your church, Jesus? I think that's what Peter was thinking. Like, I'm I'm pretty sure we can find another solution, Jesus, um, as we'll see later. But the Apostle Peter eventually learned this. Why does Jesus have to do this? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Look at this. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. So that's the plan. It's the eternal plan, but was made manifest. That means he was revealed in the last times for the sake of you. Why must this take place? Well, Peter tells us it was planned for you. It was planned for you and I. It was planned for us. The Apostle Paul goes on to explain it even in more clarity in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 and 6. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time. Why does Jesus have to do this? Why must this take place? How come this is the only way to build a church? Because the people he wants to gather, you and I, are sinful people. We are marked with iniquity. We have rebelled against a holy God. We cannot be in the presence of God in his holiness and in his majesty and in his purity unless something is fixed. There's an enmity between us and God. There's a barrier between us and God, not put up by God, put up by us, implemented by us when we turn our backs on God, when we love ourselves more than we love him, when we love creation more than creator. We have put a barrier between us and God. We have said no. Don't tell me what to do. Don't be in my life. I'm fine. Just leave me be. That's why Jesus can't just gather his church and say, come, we're going to have this awesome worship party. There's a a gap between us and enmity. And so Jesus has to come in as the mediator between two opposing parties and die in our place and for our sins. To build his church Jesus has to go in as a faithful husband and take his wife out of her prostitution and buy her back. That's the striking and stunning and crazy imagery that is found in the Old and New Testament. There's no other creature that can take our place. No Passover lamb, not even a righteous human could take the sins of the world. It had to be a God-man. The one who is sinned against as God, and the one who is fully man, who can be our substitute. 
And so when Jesus says, I must do these things, it's because he loves you and I. He doesn't want this. The eternal God does not want separation. He does not want to experience the hell of God's wrath and torment on the cross. But he loves his people. And so Jesus says, to answer the question, how are you going to build your church? I must go to Jerusalem. I must suffer many things. I must be killed and I must be raised on the third day. There is no other way. Because the way up is down. The way to glory or the way to the crown is first through the cross. Isn't it? We know this. If you've been a Christian sometime, you know this, but let it sit on you again. He had to do this to win you back. It goes against our instincts, though. It went against Peter's, as we see in verses 22 to 23. I think I would have done the same thing as Peter because I want the glory Jesus. I want the king Jesus. I want the crown Jesus. I don't want the cross Jesus because the cross Jesus might involve crosses for me also. And Peter took Jesus aside in verse 22 and did a very bold thing and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Isn't Peter just like you and I? He wants victory. He wants success. He wants comfort. He wants, he wants all the glory with none of the sacrifice. So much so that Peter's even willing to offer a similar thing that Satan offered Jesus when he was tempted in the desert. If you just bow down and worship me, Satan said, you can have all the kingdoms of the earth with no cross, with no separation between you and God, with no wrath. Just bow down to me. Peter's saying, you can have your church, Jesus, without the cross. And that's why Jesus delivers such a stunning and sharp rebuke to the one whom he's just said is the rock upon which I'll build this church. To the one he just said, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Peter gets it disastrously wrong, which is another argument for why it's very clear from this passage. You cannot argue that Peter ought to be the Pope, um, a succession Uh, It's only when Peter's speaking rightly uh, that we're meant to follow what he says. So what Jesus, what must he do? He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things. He must be killed and he must be raised again. There is no other way. It's been the plan all along. Genesis 3, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, even obscure places, which I recommend. Go and read Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 17, where it talks about this promised one being pierced. It's been planned all along, but Peter has overlooked those verses and focused in on the, the glory Messiah verses. The only way to save sinners from their sins, is the way of the cross. The way up is down. The only way to truly live is by dying. So, okay, that's just a couple of verses. Let's took a bit of time. 
we went up, 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 up on the roller coaster. Then we come crashing down. It's a jarring moment, but it's about to get a little bit worse for the disciples and for us. Point number two, what we must do. So we've seen point number one, what he must do to save us. Now we get to be included in on the action. We get thrown in. It reminds me of, you know, when you're on a roller coaster and like the first time you kind of do it, it's like, oh, that's fun. But then there comes a point uh, where you're like, okay, I'm good now. It's time to hop off. Or when you're on one of those ones that go up and down and then up and down, and you're like, okay, I experienced the thrill. Now it's time for me to jump off. Uh, that's that moment uh, for me. When I read this text, I'm like, I, to be honest, my heart is like, thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. I will receive forgiveness of sins. I will join the church. And now I will enjoy the blessings of your sacrifice. And Jesus says, all right, boys, this is, if you want to follow me, this is what you're going to have to do. You're coming with me. Notice that Jesus in these verses, he doesn't demand or coerce or force, but he outlines clearly for all of us to weigh up and decide. And although we know most of these demands intimately, if you're a follower of Jesus already, let us again soberly weigh them all up. Because although they applied to you when you first decided to follow Christ, they equally apply to each of us every day as you consciously continue to follow him. And if you are not yet a Christian and wondering, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Well, this is Jesus's answer, not mine. I didn't make this up. This wouldn't be what I would make up because um, you wouldn't want what I would make up. It wouldn't work. This is Jesus's answer. And so if you still want to become a Christian after we go through this, then you know that God is at work in your life because there's no way from a human perspective you would want to do this. So let's lean in and see what the call of a Christian is, what we must do to follow him. Verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus gives three commands here. Three conditions. If you want to follow me, then you must do these three things. They are necessary conditions of following Jesus. None of them are optional. Number one, you must deny yourself. This is first and foundational. We must give up the right to decide who we are and how we are to live and what we are to do. To be a follower of Christ is to lay down your very personhood, your right to claim your own sovereignty at the feet of your master and say, control me, lead me, guide me. Like we sang, I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ. This teaching from Jesus is a fundamental heresy in our day and age. Yet it is foundational to following Jesus. In our day and age, we are to follow ourselves, to believe in ourselves, to trust in ourselves, to be who we feel like we are on the inside. But Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you don't have to lose, you know, the the nature and personality necessarily, 
But foundationally, you have to deny yourself and the right to own yourself and give it to me. That's a radical claim. That's a challenging claim. Are you willing to do it? The second thing, take up his cross. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. This is the ultimate expression of self-denial. To embrace the real possibility of death as a follower of Jesus. To give up the most precious part of yourself, our very life. We, we ought not to tone this down. This does not mean drinking instant coffee instead of lattes so you can give more. This, that's not cross-bearing. There's lots of sacrifices we make, but when Jesus said, take up your cross, there was a very specific image that he was implying, and that was the cruel and brutal and shameful torture of public crucifixion that the Romans had invented. There's no way that you can put together minor sacrifices compared to a cross. What Jesus is saying is that if you want to be one of my followers, you need to be prepared to carry around a cross with you at all times in case you have to die for me. You need to be willing and ready to die to be my follower. Be prepared for your execution, he says to the disciples. All those disciples, other than Judas, who sadly killed himself, and Peter, uh, sorry, John, who was exiled, they all did die for their faith. Jesus has already predicted this level of opposition in chapter 10, and many thousands of Christians around the world actually face this reality daily. We may or may not ever face anything like this as a real threat in our day to day lives as a Christian here in Australia. But we must decide in our hearts beforehand whether we'd be prepared to do it or not. If the situation arose, if the timing happened, if something like this were to take place, would you be willing? Are you ready to die for your faith? That's what Jesus calls upon us. And thirdly, follow me. The tense of this verb actually changes from the previous two. The previous two were completed actions. Deny yourself, done. Take up your cross, done. Now, okay, you can follow me. This is a continuous present tense um, imperative saying, this is every day, follow me. Model yourself after me. Be my disciple. Copy how I live. How I speak, speak. How I think, think. How I love, love. How I talk, talk. Do like that. That's what he's saying. But these two prior actions are prerequisites to being a follower of Jesus. We can't call ourselves a Christian if we haven't denied ourselves and taken up our cross. You can't say I'm a follower of Jesus unless you're prepared to do those two things. Jesus built his church by dying for her and then sending out fellow cross bearers to do the same. We follow a crucified king. That is our calling. A student is not above his teacher. And so we are, in our hearts, ought to be prepared to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. You know, we don't know what the future holds. We're not sure if we will experience more or less persecution if we continue to live in Australia. Currently, 
you know, we get minor little things, uh, you know, social awkwardness, perhaps we're being more and more seen as the bad guys as one popular book talks about. But joining Jesus' mission, whether you're, you know, an old Christian or a new Christian, has always meant being prepared for these realities. Being a Christian right now means laying down your life. It has always meant giving up your time, your treasure, your plans, your hopes, your dreams, and laying it before Jesus and saying, it's yours. If you have a different plan for me, take me where you want. If you want me to have this house or not, you take it. If you want me to have this job or not, you take it. If you want me to be in relationship with this person or not, you take it. I am not my own. I was bought with a price. And so, friends, let me ask you, have you denied yourself? And are you continuing to deny yourself? Are you prepared to take up your cross? And are you following him? I don't want this to be true, to be honest. I, I don't like this passage um, in my you know, sinful nature. I like the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is awesome. Um, victory, wealth, success, power, affirmation, respect. Whoa, wouldn't that be great? If that's what we got just right here, right now, that would be very fulfilling um, and would very much fit in with my lifestyle. Um, I like living in middle-class suburban Australia. I like having a nice, safe school and a nice, safe life and, you know, nice people and neighbours. That's what I like. But that may not be what God has called me to, depending on what the future looks like, and it may not be what God has called you and I to. We always have to be prepared for the level of sacrifice and cost. We always, in fact, for those of us who are in prosperous times, we need to be leaning further into this text and saying, okay, Lord, it's so hard um, because I don't have to make this choice every day. Help me to make this choice again. Help me to lay my life down again. So have you truly done this? Are you a true follower of Jesus? Or, and here's the scary question, Are you just playing at it whilst it's convenient? If Christianity, if church, if following Jesus was no longer convenient, would you give it up? Would you give it up? And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you might be thinking, why on earth would I want to become one? And that would be a fair question. And even if you are a follower of Jesus, you might be thinking, why on earth do I, am I a Christian? Like, this is silly. I don't want to do this anymore. And Jesus knows that. And so Jesus goes on to provide three motivations, three compelling reasons why this is the only logical choice is to follow him according to what he has said. And that leads us to point number three, why we must do it. So point number one, what he must do. Point number two, what we must do. Point number three, why we must do it. Why? Well, for the followers of Jesus, the way up is down and the only way to truly live is by dying. Jesus gives three reasons in verses 25 to 28. Reason number one, why you should be a follower of Jesus. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In light of eternity, If Jesus is real, following Jesus is the only logical option for your safety, security, wealth, and joy. 
Jesus says, if you try to save your life by turning away from him and rejecting him and preserving your comfort, security, life, and peace, you will lose it. But if you give up the rights to your comfort, security, life, and peace here on earth, you will have eternal life. You will. That's his promise from the resurrected king. Judas did this. Judas chose wealth and security. He he left the disciples because he was afraid of losing his life. He was afraid of what was going to happen to him potentially. Uh, He wanted the money and he lost his eternal life. He rejected Jesus Christ. But if you choose him, you will have eternal life. That's the promise, guys. And this tests whether we really believe what Jesus says. I want to make a note here that it doesn't matter if you give your life away for amazing charity or good works. It is only if you give your life away for Jesus Christ. It's only if you follow him that you will gain eternal life. We ought not to be confused with doing good deeds and following the good king. Second reason why you should be a Christian and continue as a Christian, Jesus says, verse 26, He does some eternal economics again. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? It gets us to think in return on investment language. What's the the ultimate gain? A few short years of comfort versus an eternity of torment, an eternity of being handed over to your sins and the wrath of God. And what can you give in exchange for your soul? You can't be good enough. You can't be rich enough to buy eternal life. The only way you can get it is by following Jesus and giving up your right to decide who you are and what you do here on earth. And so Jesus says, lose your life here, you will gain the eternal one. To gain the world here and now is one of Satan's great temptations. As we mentioned, it's how Satan tempted Jesus. You can have it all without the cost. He wants us to deny Christ and to serve ourselves. He wants you and I, and he's constantly tempting us, to move away from serving and sacrifice and towards selfish ambition. And confusingly, Satan's temptations probably and most likely come via quote-unquote open doors. We think it's an open door because it gives us what we want, but we ought to be very, very careful. It's not that every opportunity is a temptation from Satan. Don't hear me saying that. But often what we want (laughs) correlates with what Satan wants for us. At least that's just in my own heart. I want a better car, a better life, more security, more comfort, more, more, more. I want better things for me. And so when those open doors come, I don't even test them. They're like, whoa, I'm walking through. We ought to be wary. Satan wants us to gain the whole world and lose our soul. A job offer, a home loan offer, a relationship offer. We ought to be wary and sober-minded, not outright just say no to everything that's good. I'm not teaching a poverty um, gospel, but I'm saying wary and humble, submitting things, asking, hey, what do you think? Hey, I've got this offer. I've got this person. This person's interested in me. What's your take? 
because, oh, how terrible would it be to gain the whole world and to lose your soul? Third reason, final reason Jesus gives is, again, an eternal motivation. Verse 27 and 28. Why should you take up your cross and follow him? The son of man is going to come. That's him. Jesus Christ is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father. And then he will repay or reward each person according to what he has done. And then he leans in and looks at the disciples and says, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. Jesus is not all doom and gloom, but he knows the cross comes before the crown. And so he wants us to see the crown glittering ahead of us. He wants us to know that he is coming back on a white horse with his staff, with his people, with the armies of heaven, and he will gather the elect from the four corners of the earth. He will gather you and I, those who have called upon his name. He will call us out by name. He will resurrect us into new life if we were dead, and then he will reward us according to each and every sacrifice we have made in his name. That's what this verse teaches us. He will repay each person according to what he has done. The king who laid everything down to save you and I will reward us for our sacrifices done for him. (laughs) That is an incredible reality. A reality which is there to motivate us to sacrifice and to live for the kingdom now. To not get caught up in the things of this world now, but to think with eternal economics of what is going to come. To have a vision and a picture of Jesus, majestic, not just crucified, but resurrected as he must be on the third day. And the disciples, they got a taste of this. Some of them, they got a taste. We're going to see next week transfigured Jesus. Then they're going to see him die. They're going to see him resurrected. They're going to see the church go forward with thousands of people saved. Then Peter, he's going to take the gospel and Gentiles are going to be brought in. And some of them, you know, Judas missed out on this because he rejected Christ. But the disciples will see the kingdom advancing like it's never done before. So bank on it, friends. Bank on eternal life. Bank on your inheritance in Christ and let it motivate you. Let the self-denial now motivate you for the absolute pleasure and joy and eternity that is coming. I need this message. I'm a slave of comfort. I lust for comfort. I want everything to be nice and easy. Reading and studying this passage, I don't like it because I don't want this to be true. I don't. That's my sinful nature. And perhaps you don't as well. And so we have to deny ourselves and trust that Jesus knows what is best, that his eternal plan is the best plan for you and I today, that the way up, if we really want to go up, we must go down. If we really want to live, we must die to ourselves. Donald Hagner writes in his commentary, The path of discipleship is the path of the cross for everyone who would follow Jesus. Paradoxically, it is the one who gives up his or her life in discipleship to Jesus who will truly find life, both in the present and in the future. 
while the one who seeks to have life on his, his or her own terms will, in effect, lose it. Following Jesus will kill you and save your life. Following Jesus will rob you and make you richer than ever. Following Jesus will enslave you and set you free. It is hard. It is costly. It will require your very self and perhaps our very life. But every cost will be worth it. You can bank on it. So, friends, as we have ridden this road, this roller coaster today. We last time we were in Matthew, we went to the heights, the glory. He will build his church. It cannot be stopped. But how's he going to do it? He must be killed. What must we do? We have to follow the crucified one, deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. Why must we do it? Because first comes the cross. Then comes the crown. If you want to go up, you must go down. If you want to truly live, you must die. It's in your best interest. If you're not yet a Christian, see the love of God for you, that he did this. He didn't have to. There's no rule which says gods have to sacrifice themselves and experience their own wrath and torment in order to save their people. No. He did it because of love, freely. If you are a Christian and you're doubting God's love, look again to the cross and see it and know it and experience it. And then let that fuel and motivate you so that for every sacrifice he calls you to, you know that he went first. He went up the hill before you and he will go with you. We do not be disciples on our own. We have God, the Holy Spirit, living in us, animating us and giving us the power to actually deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. So you don't have to look within yourself and be like, I can't do it. Well, you should look within and go, I can't do it. And then you should look up and say, God, help me. Help me. I don't know what this will look like for you and I in all of the different life applications. I encourage you to think about it, meditate upon it. But the command is clear. This is what he must do. This is what we must do. This is why we must do it. And friends, the way up is down. And the only way to live is by dying. So please follow Jesus every day until the end. And I'm going to do it with you for his glory. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, with a message like this, it's... It's scary because it's one of those messages you sort of don't want to give because then you have to live it out yourself. And so, Lord, I ask that for myself and for my people and for us that you would help us to trust you, that you know what you are doing, that your plans are perfect, and that what we deny ourselves here, we will pleasure ourselves with in all eternity. It will be more than made up. We thank you that you sent your son to die in our place and for our sins, to be a ransom, to be the mediator between us and you. Be with us through the power of your Holy Spirit that we can practically live this out moment by moment, day by day, week by week, year by year, decade by decade, until we die or until you return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.